or open up um, your phones to uh, the book of Acts. And we are going to be in the book of Acts, continuing our sermon series um, through the book of Acts. Back up there. All right. Um, In uh, our sermon series of Refresh, we've been looking at the early church uh, and the way in which the early church uh, grew and was transformed by the Spirit and the way in which that um, happened in the first century. And we're looking to learn from that to see how is it that we, God's people, can refresh our priorities as a church. And we have been walking through this. We're actually in chapter 23 now. Um, We are moving our way towards the end of this book. And um, so this morning, uh, we're going to be in chapter 23. All right, so Hebrews 6 uh, as, as a way of introduction, Hebrews 6.16 says this, Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Now, the context of this passage in Hebrews is, is uh, dealing with the promise of God and the way in which God promises to his people. We're going to return to this later, but I want to focus on the idea of an oath. Swearing by something, something greater than yourself that will hold you accountable, right? That's the idea of this, is that uh, if I want to promise you something and I want to hold myself accountable to it and show you that I am accountable to it, I will swear by something greater than myself that will hold me accountable to it. Something uh, that Hebrews says, this oath is binding, right? It's like the unbreakable vow in Harry Potter. Uh, It holds you to it. But in that, right, whatever you bind yourself to by that, you end up serving this oath, right? It is something that you've bound yourself to, and so you're going to uh, fulfill this oath to the best of your ability. So my question this morning is, what binds you? To what have you bound yourself? Maybe not by words of a formal oath, but in your heart, what have you bound yourself to which is evidenced by the way you live and spend your time and your life. That if someone were to write an oath describing your life that you have bound yourself to, what would it be? We want to keep this in mind as we look at this text, and we're going to really focus on three sets of characters in this text. We're going to focus on the Romans who are bound to the empire, the Roman soldiers who are bound to the empire. We're going to focus on the Jewish leaders and the mob that is going to be seeking Paul's life, which is a frequent theme in the book of Acts, bound by religious tradition. We're going to look at Paul, who is bound by Christ. We're going to see the ways in which these things interact with one another in the midst of this text. So, to set us up, we're going to be in Acts, the very end of Acts 22. We ended last week at the end of Acts 22. And if you remember last week, right, Paul, uh, he was uh, in the, this is actually from a few weeks ago, Paul had come into Jerusalem, he was in the temple, Uh, they are very angry that Paul is in the temple, and so this mob gathers together to kill Paul. The Roman uh, soldiers come in to uh, remove Paul from the situation, um, and uh, to, to prevent this giant uproar. Um, and they have no idea what's going on. They think Paul actually, right, uh, 
We saw last week, they think Paul is a, a man who led an insurrection because they're like, well, clearly this guy has done wrong because these folks want to kill him. So they take Paul out, and Paul asks to speak to the crowd. And as he speaks to the crowd, he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. He speaks about how the resurrected Christ came to him, appeared to him, and has transformed everything about his life. And the, the Jews in the temple are listening. They are carefully listening until Paul says what? The Gentiles. God called me to go to those people that you don't like. Their coats and they throw up the dust trying to find stones to kill him. So that's where we ended, right? That's, that's the end of that scene that we were at. So the commander, this Roman commander, brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. Now, this was a pretty standard practice in, uh, for Roman soldiers. If we didn't know what happened, we were going to beat you until you told us what happened particularly among non-Romans. It was common in Roman law to torture for confessions, particularly from non-Romans, and it often led to death. It was often just like, hey, well, you didn't confess, but you're dead. The Roman official may have intervened several times, and we're going to see him intervene more to save Paul from being lynched by this mob only to have him potentially lynched by state violence. They are not necessarily out for Paul's benefit in any real meaningful way. They are simply seeking to keep the peace. And the way to keep the peace is to find whatever I believe or these folks believe is a troublemaker and make him confess his crime, even if he's committed none. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? Now remember, Paul has brought this up before in other contexts in which he waits until the last possible second to say, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And well, we saw the response last time and we see the response this time as well. When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. Now, he may have had to produce evidence that he was a Roman citizen, which he would have had on him, um, some sort of marker that would have been evidence that he was a Roman citizen. I am too, the commander muttered, and it costs me plenty. Paul answered, but I am a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. He had ordered him bound and whipped. You see, in this section, we see very clearly that this Roman commander is bound to empire. He's bound to the empire. Now, that's literally what would have been true. Roman soldiers would take an oath to the Roman Empire that they would have to renew every year. They are bound to service to the Roman Empire. But we see more than just this outward binding to the empire, this Roman soldier is bound to pursue the good of the empire above all else. What what is it that motivates this commander to stop the lashing of an innocent man to force a confession? Is it that he realizes this man is innocent? 
Is it that he realizes this man is made in God's image and whether he's innocent or guilty, whipping him into a confession is not correct? No, it's that he finds out this guy's a Roman and uh, I could be in lots of trouble because of that. He's in it for self-preservation and or I treat Romans better than I treat non-Romans. Right? If it was not a Roman, would he have cared? Paul probably, let's, let's imagine for a moment that this would have been Philip or James or John. If they were non-Roman citizens, what would have happened to them? They probably would have been killed. They probably would have been killed in trying to force a confession in which this Roman soldier is eventually going to say, this man is not guilty of anything. He's eventually going to admit this man is not guilty of anything worthy of death, but we were ready to kill him potentially because we're so bound to empire. When bound to empire, the ethics are situational. In a certain situation, I will save Paul from his death because it benefits the empire to not have an uproar to not have a violent uproar in which there is mob violence killing people. I could get in trouble for that because I'm supposed to keep the peace. So I'm going to save Paul. Now, in order to keep the peace longer, I might order Paul killed, right? Isn't this exactly what the Romans did with Jesus? In order to please the crowds, we're going to punish him by death, even though every official says he has done nothing worthy of death. Situational ethics. The fear of consequences of the empire motivates him. And it means that the enemy of my enemy can become my friend. Right? This happens with Jesus, with Pilate and Herod, both of whom were at odds with one another but became friends because they united in their uh, giving over Jesus to death because the Jews had demanded it. Now, my question to us this morning is, how are we prone to this? Now, it might be easy to think like, well, not prone to this because we're not Roman soldiers in uh, uh, an empire. But I want to challenge us to think about ways in which we have elevated our American citizenship over our discipleship to Jesus. Remember, I said in the beginning, not something that is this uh, outward oath that I have taken, but what about the ways in which my heart works, the things that motivate me, the things that change the way I think about things? Is it motivated by my American citizenship or my discipleship to Jesus? Do we really think that I have more in common with a follower of Jesus in China Iran, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Egypt, Mexico, Australia, wherever in the world, than I do with a fellow American who does not follow Jesus. I have more in common because of my citizenship in heaven with the family of God than I do with this citizenship. 
right? There's a reason that Paul brings out his Roman citizenship. Absolutely, in wisdom, Paul uses that to advance the kingdom. And yet there's a reason that Paul doesn't go around declaring his Roman citizenship because his citizenship is in heaven. It is far more important to him. Do we value the family of God globally more than the empire that is America? What about the way in which the political climate that we live in has shaped us? And has it shaped us more than Jesus shapes us? You see, for Paul, the line between empire and Christianity was very clear and could be outwardly costly. Ultimately, Paul is going to die at the hands of the empire, right? He is going to appeal and be sent to Rome. We're going to learn this in a few chapters. Spoiler alert, you can read on. You know, you you actually have it with you, right? Like, I'm not like hiding anything from you. You have access to the script there. Uh, Paul is eventually going to be killed by the empire. It is costly to him. But the distinction between empire and Christianity is very, very clear. Now remember, in the first sermon in this series, we talked about this pivotal moment in church history in which the emperor Constantine converts to Christianity. Now, there's much debate whether this was a genuine conversion or not, but that's not the point. The point is he makes Christianity legal in the empire And then eventually, Christianity becomes the the required religion of the empire. Previously, right, we read stories in the first few centuries of the church of uh, martyrs of the Christian faith who refused to make a sacrifice to the emperor, right, Uh, in, in signs of emperor worship. They refused to do it and were killed because of it. Now, Christianity is the official religion of the empire. And so the line between empire and Christianity becomes blurred. And actually, the line between empire and Christianity can be outwardly beneficial. Empire can make you rich and powerful. Seats of the church, uh, bishops and others, are sold for money because they're powerful positions. Folks uh, allow for political pressure to be the thing that defines how and where the church functions. Now, again, I said this in that first sermon, there are benefits that come to this, right? We get the Council of Nicaea in 325, which is just like 10 years after Constantine converts and makes Christianity legal because all the bishops can gather together and deal with theological issues because they won't be killed. When the bishops gather together, several of them show signs of persecution. They're missing eyes and limbs because of persecution that they have faced. But they can now gather together in safety to deal with the issues of theology. That's very, very good. And yet it's also very, very dangerous to unite Christianity, this countercultural, global, uh, otherworldly, Movement, the way, with a singular empire. It, is, it can be both, both of these, the line being clear between empire and Christianity and the line being blurred between empire and Christianity can be dangerous to body and soul. That's the same danger we continue to face now. We continue to face this now, right? Whether or not 
you believe, uh, uh, what, what you believe about the founding of America and uh, Christianity's role in that, it played a role for sure. And so uh, how that has shaped our history is actually very important for us to know, to understand that that line between empire and Christianity has been blurred often in our culture and in the church in America. And we need to be careful about that. We must not be interested in the nod of the empire towards Christianity, but in the transformation of the empire towards the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And how do we know the difference of this? Well, first of all, we would follow the ethics of Jesus, the ethics of the way, which is in sharp contrast to the ethics of the American empire. And not just the secular, pagan, sinful culture of Hollywood, but also the American dream version that may fit neater into the church, but does not reflect the ethics of Jesus. We've been learning throughout the book of Acts the way in which the church was radically different. Concerned about the poor, concerned about one another, concerned about issues of justice, concerned about issues of sharing the message of the resurrected Lord to the world. This ought to define us. It's very easy to walk through life in the American church often and be living the American dream just using Christianity to get there. That's possible for us. We have to ask ourselves, what does our life show we have bound ourselves to? To empire or to Jesus? We would be defined by the love of Jesus. We would be defined in knowing and seeing the dignity and value of, and worth of those made in God's image. Meaning that when those things are in conflict, the ethics of Jesus, the ethics of the kingdom, the value and dignity of worth of Uh, those made in God's image, which is everyone, when those come in conflict with the values and protection of the empire, which do we choose? Which do we choose? Do we choose to support and to run after change that creates the good for the American empire or for the good of those made in God's image? Because sometimes those are in conflict. And which will we choose? It means we would be defined by the servanthood of Jesus and the cross-cultural mission of Jesus. What is it exactly that Paul gets yelled at for? Why are they ready to stone him? Because he's going to those people with the gospel. We ought to be defined by going to those people with the gospel. Meaning, it's for the world not just for us. This is very, very important for us to to wrestle through. Now, that's not the only way in which folks can be bound. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priests into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him stand before them. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, "'Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience.'" Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul, slap him on the mouth. We're going to see a connection between 
being bound to empire and being bound to religious tradition that ultimately leads to the same end, violence. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? This is the irony we're going to see throughout this whole thing. Those in this Jewish high council are committing all of these things because they are saying Paul is a breaker of the law, and yet they are going to break God's law constantly in their pursuit of bringing Paul to the justice that they think God's law deserves. See the irony there? Those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare insult God's high priest? I'm sorry, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied, for the scriptures say you must not speak evil of, your, of any of your rulers. Now, Paul is probably in an unofficial setting of this high council. The, the commander probably called an informal court to deal with things, not through the, the formal means, because the formal means would exonerate Paul, but through the informal means. Very similar to Jesus, right? Tried by night. So the high priest was probably not wearing very distinctive clothing, so he wouldn't have known that he was the high priest. Maybe? Nope. Yep. I'm mean, going to have to have you uh, switch that. <laughs> uh, Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I am a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the, de- of the dead. This divided the council, the Pharisees, against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. Paul recognizes that this is a mixed high council of Sadducees and Pharisees. They had differing theological positions. And so Paul says, uh, it it could be that Paul is trying to uh, be, as Jesus says, wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove, that Paul is saying, these folks are divided against each other, and I can save myself by showing that they are divided against each other. But it also is consistent with Paul's message throughout. What did he say to the Jews in the crowd? Resurrection from the dead. What does Paul say everywhere he goes? Resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is his message. The risen Lord Jesus, that's my message. Jesus is Lord, no one else is. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him. They shouted, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. See how they do this though? They're trying to push their agenda and use Paul. They're not followers of the way. They're not repenting and following Jesus. They're saying, what do they say specifically? Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. That's not what he said. He said God spoke to him in the person of Jesus. You see how they twist it? To promote themselves and their own religious tradition. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. The next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now here we see another binding. 
The first binding was this Roman soldier who is bound by oath to the empire. And the second binding is these Jewish men who have bound themselves by an oath to not eat or drink until they kill Paul. In reading the Old Testament, I don't see a place in which that comes up. Where the Lord says, bind yourself to an oath to kill an innocent man. It's not there. There were more than 40 of them in this conspiracy. They went to the leading priests and elders and told them, we have bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we have killed Paul. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again. Pretend you want to examine his case more fully. We will kill him on the way. See the way in which they have planned this out? Lie to the officials. Lie to the officials. Do you remember what God told Israel? I'm giving you my law. Why? So that you would be a beacon of light to the world. You want to see how life should be done? You want to see how, what it means to thrive as one made in my image, to be a special people that I am meeting with? You will be my special people and I will be your God. Now, go lie to the officials. Lie to them so that we can hide and kill this man who has done nothing wrong but challenges our status quo. So, uh, but the, Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul, the Lord is constantly looking out for Paul. Paul called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So the officer did, explaining, Paul, the prisoner, called me over and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took his hand, led him aside, and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? Paul's nephew told him, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get some more information. But don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. They are ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. Don't let anyone know that you told me this. Bound to religious tradition. These Jews are bound to religious tradition so much so that they're actually willing to go against the Lord in order to uphold their religious tradition. Now, how are we prone to this as well? One of the mottos of the Reformation is this phrase, always reforming. If we are to believe that our tradition, our denomination, or our church has got it all figured out, we are actually betraying our church, our denomination, and our tradition of always reforming. Now, this is a reforming, not saying, hey, these doctrines that we don't like that are out of step with the culture, let's get rid of those and reform those. No, this is referring to a work of the hearts. These men who we see in this text are in a religious, in their religious zeal for God are breaking God's law. Oh, friends, we must beware of religious zeal not bound tightly to Christ not bound tightly to God's word and God's spirits. If we are to be always reforming, then us as American Presbyterians, we are a Presbyterian church, we have a lot of work to do. Sometimes we are too much American. 
in our Presbyterianism, right? That's what we talked about, being bound to empire. And sometimes we are too much Presbyterian, decently and in order, doing things decently and in order. Sometimes the work of the Spirit is messy and needs some shaking up. The question is, how have we been bound to these things more than we've been bound to Christ? Are we listening to the Spirit of God in his word? Not simply quoting our favorite theologian or running to see what my favorite Christian celebrity Instagram influencer says about a particular thing. The fact that that's even a thing is so against the way of Jesus. And just confirming my views with theirs rather than submitting myself to the Spirit of God and the way in which he speaks through his word. Don't just be here because you've always been in church. You know, lots of folks today are deconstructing their faith or some are are leaving the faith altogether because they are finding out they were bound simply to religious tradition and not to God. And when you see the way religious tradition acts, sometimes you're out, right? I mean, imagine being in this crowd, being a faithful follower of Yahweh and seeing the way in which the religious leaders treated Jesus and then the way in which they're treating the church. You might think to yourself, if that's what your religion does, I'm out. A lot of folks are having the same kind of response to the church today. I see the way you treat people. I see the way in which you speak of others with such disdain and judgment. I'm out. I see the way that you don't care about issues that relate to my life, issues of justice, issues of entering into the conversations around race and justice that we are having as a culture, and you don't seem interested. I'm out. You see, these folks, these folks here, these 40 men, they're trying to lynch Paul. You know that Christians in this country have been a part of lynchings? And some folks learn that and they think, forget this. I'm out of here. While never understanding that Paul's declaration of judgment on those who are mocking God's justice in this passage also is for those who have participated in lynchings. I am all for deconstructing religious tradition. Absolutely. But be careful you don't go from religious tradition to new religious tradition and miss Jesus on the way. Run to Jesus. Yes, we are a part of a denomination. Yes, We are a formally organized church with leaders and elders. Yes, but let us not ever value that above Jesus. Let's not get things twisted here. I am not the head of this church. The elders are not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of this church. And if ever there is a time in which what we do is out of step with Jesus, let's move what we do, not hold fast to what we do. That is out of step with Jesus. That's vitally important. We cannot bind ourselves to religious tradition. 
We bind ourselves to Jesus because he's the resurrected Lord. So the question is, do the views that you hold, do the things that you believe, are they held simply because you are being bound to some sort of religious tradition here or where you grew up or whatever? If so, please do not keep it that way. Even if they're the right views, hold them because of Jesus. Investigate Jesus. Dig into Jesus. We are here simply to feed you Jesus. That's it. And if we stop doing that, stop coming here. Let this thing fall away. Because Jesus is the only thing that lasts. Not religious tradition. Well, we see these two things come together in this next section of the text. Then the commander called two of his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at nine o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops, provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. Then he wrote this letter to the governor. From Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by some Jews and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. Then I took him to their high council. You notice he left out a part? Like I removed him to safety. I almost was going to beat him to death, but I chose not to because he said he was a Roman. Like he leaves that part out, right? Like I'm not going to share with the governor all those things. I preserve myself here. Then I took him to their high council to try to learn the basis of the accusations against him. I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. So I kept him imprisoned, and I'm sending him on to continue in prison to you. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I have told his accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night, as ordered, the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to Governor Felix. He read it and then asked Paul what province he was from. Cilicia, Paul answered. I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. Then the governor ordered him kept in the prison at Herod's headquarters. See the way in which these two things have come together, both a Binding to empire and a binding to religious tradition is a willingness to imprison and to kill in order to maintain power and status quo for both religious tradition and for empire. It doesn't matter that Paul is innocent. Do you see that? It doesn't even matter. It's about maintaining the peace, which is a false peace. How can it be maintained peace when innocent people are put in jail over something that everyone, including the officials who are putting them in jail, are saying isn't worthy of being in jail? Also, do you see the way in which this religious zeal has hit a fever pitch where they are trying to kill Paul? That's not how we have theological debates. We ought to be ones who are able to enter into differences of opinions around theological issues, religious issues, all of those things, without getting to the point of wanting death upon folks. 
that would break the ethics of Jesus. That means, friends, Jesus says, right, that if I hate my brother in my heart, I've already killed him. The law applies not simply to my actions, but also to my heart. So be careful in your theological debates that you not harbor hatred against those you disagree with. It's not worth your soul to be right. We are to be like Jesus, not simply to be right. Well, what about Paul? I've talked about being bound to empire, being bound to religious tradition. I want to skip back to Acts 23.11. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Now, sometimes I think we read over this and miss kind of the big picture of this. You know that Jesus doesn't speak very often in the book of Acts. He's speaking to Paul. Just as Paul has said, I spoke to the risen Jesus, now Acts records the risen Jesus speaking to Paul again. Paul is bound to Christ. He has an intimacy, a union with Jesus so close that he is hearing from Jesus in the moments of his distress. Paul is so bound up in Jesus that to persecute Paul is to persecute the church. Right? Paul is so bound up in Jesus that he, in the midst of his suffering, experiences the encouragement of Jesus. When you face hardship in your life, when you face suffering or opposition, what do you run to? What is it that you run to? Often for me, it's running away from responsibilities and running to comfort. My life will be better if I can just run away to a good movie, right? Like I long sometimes to run to uh, the Shire. That's where I, I, that's where I long to run, right? I just, I just want to sit in Lord of the Rings. Like, ah, this will distract me for a good 14 hours, right? This is good. This is real good. I can really invest in here, right? Where does Paul run when he's in turmoil? To Jesus. He runs to Jesus, and Jesus comes near to him. What is Paul's mode, uh, mode of action, right? If the mode of action of those bound to religious tradition and those bound to empire is imprisonment and death, what is Paul's? Suffering. Now, not with some martyr complex, like Paul... He's going to say, hey, by the way, as you prepare that whip to kill me, I'm a Roman citizen, right? Like, he's not just like, let's go die right now, right? He's being wise, but is Paul willing to die for Jesus? Yeah. Are we willing to die or are we willing to kill? The love of Christ is what compels him. The love of Christ captivates him. Remember, Paul had plans to go in one direction and the Spirit said no, and then he moved in another direction. He was sensitive to the way in which the Spirit was speaking through his word. Is that us? Are we bound to Jesus that we are sensitive to the way in which the Spirit is moving? Or are we bound to uh, 
tradition and creed. Bound to these things, not actually believing that the Spirit would be alive in us today. To work in us. To motivate us. To send us into the world to bring the kingdom. Are we bound to Jesus? Well, if we find in ourselves ways that we have bound our hearts to empire or to tradition, how do we move from that to binding ourselves to Christ? Well, it's by binding ourselves to the one who has bound himself to us. I want to go back to that Hebrews 6 passage. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Now, right, we're thinking, we've been thinking about this all the time. So you're thinking about us binding ourselves by an oath. But get this, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Keep going. So God has given us, given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We're not going to get into that because that's a whole other thing. It takes a long time to explain. But he has become our eternal high priest. Just before this section, what, what it says is that God bound himself to an oath, but God cannot swear to anything greater than himself. How is he going to do that? He can only swear by himself. Remember, we we looked at this when we were in Acts and we were talking about uh, Stephen's speech in Abraham. I think we talked about this there, but I've talked about this before. So it's either there or somewhere else. Just listen to all my sermons and you'll get it. Uh, So when Abraham, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he has this covenant cutting ceremony, right? Where they split the animals in half. And you walk through, and the the idea of this is we split the animals in half. We both walk through. If either of us break our end of the deal, this is what you do to us, right? It's an oath of death, a binding. Does Abraham ever walk through? No. God walks through twice. Here's the thing about being bound to Jesus. He binds himself to you. It's not about how great we can be in obeying Jesus. It's about admitting we stink at this. Bind me to you. You see, Paul, in the midst of this, Jesus doesn't come to Paul and say, Paul, get your act together. Why did you say you're a Roman citizen? Do you not believe in me? He encouraged him. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Jesus has already done everything necessary. The binding that we need is the binding of Jesus to us, not us to him. We can't do that. But Jesus has already done it for us. All you need to do is turn to him. All you need to do is trust him afresh Today, each moment, when you find yourself being prone to bind yourself to the empire for comfort or for power, 
or binding yourself to religious tradition to clear your conscience. No, turn and say, Jesus, bind my wandering heart to you. Because I'm prone to run after everything. Bind me to you. Unite me to you. Bring me near to you. Because I need you. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's praise God together. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are prone to wander. We can't do this very well. We so easily run after other things. We are quick to be tempted in so many ways for self-preservation and not for suffering service for the good of others. But Jesus, you have bound yourself to us anyway. Knowing who we were, you bound yourself to us. Thank you, Jesus. God, would you bind us even closer? Speak to us, Holy Spirit, by your word. Bind our hearts to yours and transform us for the good of this world and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.